Turn to Genesis 26. If you read Genesis 26 carefully, you will see a long shadow cast over it. You might say, what shadow, whose shadow is that? Well, it's the shadow of Abraham. Now, Abraham is no longer living at this time in Genesis 26, but his influence is going to be felt uh, for way down the road, for years to come, even to this day. His name is mentioned some seven times in this passage. And uh, what happens in this chapter to Isaac, and this chapter is all about Isaac, what happens to Isaac is very much the same, similar things that happened to Abraham. Abraham is considered uh, maybe the most prominent man in Israel's history as the founding father. And now he's dead, though, and Isaac must carry on. And what's at stake? Well, as Stephen said, a lot of threats to the promises of God. The promises of God are at stake. Uh, the future of a nation is at stake, the nation of Israel. God made all these promises to Abraham to give him land, descendants, and all these things, and make a great nation of him, make other nations that would spring from him. Now Isaac steps up to the plate. It's his turn at bat. He's got to take over. He has a big task, a task ahead of him. Imagine following in the footsteps of your famous father, Abraham. Now you're on. You're, you're on. You've got you've to do something here. The good news is that is, just like the Lord was with Abraham, so will he be with his son Isaac. And just as the Lord blessed Abraham, so will he bless Isaac. And tonight we want to think through five truths concerning the blessing of God upon Isaac. Blessing of God upon Isaac. First of all, we're going to see the promise of God's blessing in the first six verses. The promise of God's blessing, verse 1 says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. There we go again. And by the way, on my notes, I have all the uh, verses Abraham's name is listed in this chapter. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed, my, obeyed me, and he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Now, so many similarities between the events that happened in Abraham's life and the events that happened in the life of Isaac. There was a famine in the days of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And there is now another famine in the days of Isaac. So Isaac has to leave uh, where he's at, Beersheba, and, and travel to another location to try to find food. And during this famine, he goes to a place called Gerar. That's where Abraham went earlier on. Abimelech is the king of the Philistines in Gerar's Philistine territory. That should ring a bell. The name of Abimelech. Genesis 20, uh, Abraham uh, also settled in Gerar. He also encountered Abimelech, but I do not think that this Abimelech in Genesis 26 is the same Abimelech as Genesis chapter 20. Uh, one person did a calculation and discovered there were, according to his calculation, there were 75 years between uh, this uh, situation and the one that Abraham faced in Gerar with uh, another guy, with the first Abimelech. Abimelech is also a title, as I said earlier when we were talking about that in another chapter, kind of like Pharaoh. So I think, personally, this is a different Abimelech. Now, in verses 2 and 3, Isaac is treated to a special appearance from the Lord, and the Lord has definite instructions for him. Three times, notice in verses 2 and, two and 3, three times he says the same thing. He says, basically, stay in the land of Canaan. 
Uh, Gerar, by the way, is part of Canaan. Uh, do not, he says, do not go down to Egypt. And then he says, stay in the land. And then he says, sojourn in this land. The message is very clear. Isaac is to do what? Remain in the land, not go anywhere. He's not to go to Egypt. Uh, now, why did the Lord say that? Don't go down to Egypt. Could very well be it was intention. I think it was Isaac's intention to go to Egypt. Uh, and uh, to be, why? To be free from the famine. Uh, a lot of people would go to Egypt during a famine. Gerar could have been just a stop along the way. And in fact, it was a stop along the way as you were going down to Egypt, they say. And so he probably intended to go to Egypt. Why? The Nile River was there in Egypt. They're in a fam- he's experiencing a, they're experiencing a famine in the land. The Nile River's in Egypt. Isaac could go there and water his flocks and his, and his herds and all that. In fact, Egypt was called back in the day the breadbasket of the ancient world. And uh, not only did they typically have enough food to feed themselves in Egypt, but also they had a surplus. And they even fed, were able to feed neighboring countries in times of famine. So it's only logical to go to Egypt during the famine. Uh, is this sound coming across okay, or am I reverberating? That's what I thought. I thought something was quite, quite not right here. Mike's trying to fix it, our resident audiovisual expert. So how's that? Is it better now, Mike? Thank you. Uh, Mike is not only a pastor, but also jack of all trades. <laughs> uh, but when it came to a famine, Gerar could not compare to Egypt. I mean, if you're going to give me a choice, I'm going to go to Egypt, because that's, you're going to be better taken care of in Egypt than you are in Gerar, in a famine. Now, Matthew Henry points out the fact that in Genesis 12, Abraham had the liberty to go to Egypt or not during the famine. There was a famine back in Genesis 12. It doesn't say there's no prohibition listed there by God to say, don't go down to Egypt. It just it doesn't say that. He had the liberty to go, Matthew Henry tells us, which is true, in my opinion. Later on, the Lord will tell Jacob to definitely go to Egypt in a famine, in a famine Genesis 46. I want you to go to Egypt. The Lord will tell him that. And, and, uh, but here, Isaac is told not to go to Egypt during the famine. And that all depends on the Lord's leadership in the matter. He knows these individual people, and he knows why he does what he does. He just says, don't go down to Egypt. Now, verses 2 to 6 strongly emphasize the fact that Canaan is the place where he's to say, sojourn in this land. I'm going to give you this land. So Isaac has to stay where the Lord says and trust him by faith and meet his needs. Yeah, Gerar's. Better than Beersheba, apparently, in a famine situation, but not as good as Egypt. But the Lord said, no, I want you to stay right here. Trust me. I'll take care of you. You know, sometimes we have to trust the Lord where we are. We, we may even feel like, well, this, isn't the, this is not the best option for me. This is what I, not what I planned on. But the Lord in his prerogative, in his providence, rather, knows what is best. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes he wants us to do something that, we may not be, you know, we may have had another intention. However, this is his will, and it is for Isaac. Now, if it's the Lord's will for Isaac to stay in the land of Gerar, which is part of Canaan, although it's Philistine territory, then it's also his will to take care of Isaac in Gerar along with his wife. The Lord knows how to take care of people, by the way, in adverse circumstances. Just because you have adverse circumstances facing you doesn't mean that God can't take care of you in those circumstances. He certainly can, of course. Now, verses 3 and 4, the Lord refers back to the Abrahamic covenant. So many references back to Abraham, back to the covenant with him. Uh, and he makes it clear that blessing 
I'm going to bless you, Isaac, but I want you to know that blessing is attached to the promise of remaining in this land, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, he says. If you sojourn in this land, I'll be with you. In fact, three times in chapter 26, the presence of God is mentioned. In verse 3, in verse 24, verse 28, we'll see that as we go along. Now, if Isaac decided to go to Egypt on his own because he just decided he was bullheaded and wanted to go to Egypt, after God said, don't go to Egypt, I don't see him being especially blessed of God in that situation. That's the implication here. Going to, going to Egypt against the direct command of God was not the way of blessing for Isaac. And remember Exodus 32 when Israel made a golden calf and they worshipped it instead of the Lord and the Lord was very angry and he said, he said this, he told Moses, my presence will not continue to go with you. You guys have committed idolatry. I'm not, I'm not going to continue on with you. My presence is not going to. Moses, what did Moses do? He was horrified at that prospect. He pleaded with the Lord. He said in Exodus 33, 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. In other words, if you're not going with us, Lord, I don't want to go. And that's the right attitude to have. The Lord was gracious, though, and he said, my presence will go with you. That's an act of long-suffering on his part. But to tell you the truth, it's better to be in Gerar with its, with its limited resources, with the presence of God, than to go to Egypt, the land of plenty, without the presence of God. Now, Isaac had better stay where he, stay put where he is. And yes, I know, I know that God is everywhere present. We talk about the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere present with the entirety of his being. I know that. But we're talking about the special blessing of God upon Isaac right now, what he's to do. He's to stay in the land of Canaan. On top, furthermore, on top of that, you have the example set by Abraham, his father. Look at verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Now, that's an amazing statement, considering who it came from. The Lord made that statement about Abraham. This was not an editorial comment by the writer Moses, although that would have been good enough. But here, the Lord is commending Abraham with this very comprehensive statement about his obedience. The Lord says, Abraham obeyed he tells Isaac this, Abraham obeyed me, your father obeyed me, and he, he kept my charge, he kept my commandments, he kept my statutes, he kept my laws. In other words, Abraham's commitment in life was to his Lord and to God's word. That's what he was all about. Now, sadly, I've been to several funerals in my life, and I've yet to see a statement like the one in verse 5 on anyone's tombstone. Can you imagine having that on your tombstone? The Lord says, this man obeyed me all the time. Now, I mean, uh, he, 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 he kept my word. Now, if I, if, I did see, if I ever see that on a tombstone, it's going to speak volumes to me about the person's life. This is God's testimony to Abraham. Now, Abraham did not live under the Mosaic law. We talk about the Mosaic law, you know, and the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those kind of books. Uh, in fact, Deuteronomy 11, 1 says, Tell me if Deuteronomy 11.1 sounds like this verse in Genesis, Genesis 6.20, uh, verse 5. Deuteronomy 11.1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Abraham did not live under the Mosaic law, but he would have fell right in place with those who did because he kept, he kept that law, even though it wasn't even published yet. This verse also reminds me of Genesis 22. Remember when God tested Abraham? And after Abraham passed that test, a difficult test, uh, the Lord said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, 
Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Now, we can't discount that part of this equation with the Abrahamic covenant. You have obeyed my voice. Abraham's obedience was prompted by and driven by his faith in the promises and in the word of God. Driven by his faith in the word of God, and he's blessed of God uh, and because he's obedient. Now, do you see what I mean when I say Isaac is walking in Abraham's shadow? I mean, you'll see this again and again in the chapter. But that's not a bad thing to walk in his shadow in this case. In fact, it's a good thing. Now we know that, we know that, you know, when we talk about Abraham obeying, I want you to understand something. Abraham's, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the basis of that covenant is the faithfulness of God, not the obedience of Abraham. That's not the basis. Uh, no human being is perfect, not even Abraham. And as we have seen in Genesis 12 and other verses, he sinned also at times. Uh, but nevertheless, it's part of it. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham obeys. And his obedience here, that's not an act. He's, he's not a performance by him. Uh, this is, Abraham had a sincere desire to please the Lord because he was God's friend. As the scripture says three times, he was the friend of God. So he wanted to obey him. By the way, do not overlook the importance of a faith-driven obedience in your life. Don't look at that. Don't, don't overlook that. Obedience because you want to please him, because you love him. The next generation is watching it. Isaac is watching Abraham. The next generation is watching us. How are we going to live before the Lord? How do we live? If our focus is on God, we'll set the proper example for the next generation to come. Now, verse 5 is not meant to discourage Isaac with the idea that he could never attain to the spiritual maturity of Abraham, his father. It's rather meant to encourage him to uh, follow the Lord. Isn't that what Hebrews 10.24 says? I like Hebrews 10.24. It says this, Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We should do that. We should be thinking, how can I help other people uh, live for the Lord? How can I maybe set an example for them? What can I do to, to prompt them to love the Lord? Now, Abraham is obedient to God. We see that in verse 5. God says that. Now, what happens immediately as a result of this appearance of the Lord to Isaac? Look at verse 6. So Isaac lived in Gerar. He did what the Lord said to him. He didn't go down to Egypt. God made it plain, don't go down to Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't go, don't go, down, go, don't go there. Stay, stay, stay put where you are. And he obeys the Lord. So the Lord brought the same promise to Isaac that he brought to Abraham. Why? Why did he do this again? Why do we keep reading these promises again and again and again? And people wonder why we keep reading this. Because Isaac needs to know God himself. Not good enough that Abraham knew God. He can't rely on his father's faith. Uh, he himself must also be committed to the Lord and to his promises. Now, the, the faith of our fathers, we talk about the faith of our fathers, that's a wonderful blessing. We can look back to the people in history, church history, that went before us, the people in Scripture that went before us, the saints of old, and we can draw inspiration from their life. But we, in this generation, we need to know him ourselves. We can't just rely on the people in the past. We have to walk with God ourselves. And so... Isaac is promised blessing. But secondly, we have the barrier to God's blessing. The barrier to God's blessing in verses 7 11. Look at verse 7. When the men of the, of the place ask about his wife, he's in Gerar now, uh, he, he said, she's my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. Now, we know from Genesis 24 that Rebecca was first described as being beautiful. 
we're again told the same thing in verse 7. And it says there, the men of the place ask about his wife. That was Abraham's concern also. Remember that? In the <laughs> Genesis 12, Abraham was worried about the men in Egypt. That's what his concern was. And they might kill him and take his wife, he said. And then in Genesis 20, Abraham is worried about the men of Gerar. They might kill him and take his wife. And now Isaac has the same thought. In this instance, we could say the apple does not fall far from the tree. It's kind of like father like son. Isaac does exactly what his father did in, this, in the same circumstances. It's almost as if Isaac was asking himself the question, what would dad do in this situation? Well, he would do exactly what you did, and that's what happened. And what was Isaac's reasoning for deceiving the men of Gerar? Why, why did he do this? Why did he deceive them? Verse 7, he was afraid, it says. He was afraid. He thought, well, if I tell these guys this information, they're going to kill me. <laughs> My life's over with. Uh, now, I couldn't help but think of an analogy of a boxing match as I was reading these, these passages in different chapters. If this were a boxing match, we would be, now we'd be in round three. Round one and round two featured Abraham and Sarah in Egypt and Gerar. Round three features Isaac and Rebecca and Gerar. It's just the same thing playing out again and again for the third time in a row now. Verses six and seven give an accurate depiction of how we often live. This is such a great... Back to back, these verses are fascinating. Verse six, Isaac obeys the Lord. God says, don't go to Egypt. I, Lord, Isaac says, I won't go, Lord. I'll stay in Gerar. What happens in verse 7? He allows his fear to overcome his faith. Doesn't that sound like you and me many times? One day we're believing the promises of God. The next day we're caving into our sins. One day we're trusting the Lord with all our heart and soul. The next day we're seized by fear and anxiety. We're ready to lie or whatever it takes to preserve ourselves as Isaac did. Yesterday we may have been as bold as a lion standing up for the Lord. And today, we may be biting our fingernails and hiding under the bed. Why the inconsistency? We can trace it back to this fact. We're not trusting the Lord today. We're not, we may have trusted him yesterday. We're not necessarily trusting him today because trusting God is what? It's a daily pursuit, every day. In fact, every moment of the day. One commentator wrote, the repeated lapses, the repeated lapses of Abraham and Isaac emphasize the chronic weakness of God's chosen material. Chronic weakness. The chronic weakness of God's chosen material, of God's men that he chooses, God's uh, people, all God's people, have a problem with chronic weakness, some better than others, some worse than others. What do we do about our chronic weakness of not trusting God? This chronic problem we have, daily problem we have in and out of trusting God one day, not trusting the next. What do we do about that? We go back to the word of God. We always go back, what did, what did the Lord say in verses 3 and 4 to Isaac? He said, sojourn in this land, I'll, and I will be with you. I will bless you. He said he'd bless him. He'd be with him. But now, so why is Isaac running scared now? That goes against everything he just heard. He, look, have you ever had an appearance of God? I should not even ask this question. Do not say yes to that question, okay? No, we haven't had an appearance of God. But if we had, wouldn't that affect us greatly? Seriously, if we had, Isaac had this, and yet he turns around, and now he's fearful. After God says, a special visitation of God, I'm going to be with you. Now he's afraid. Always goes back to the word of God. 
Do we trust the word of God? Do we trust the promises of God? Do we trust that God's going to be with us in our present circumstances and in our future? Will Isaac trust God? Now, for the time being, Isaac is not trusting God. In fact, he's perfectly content with his deception. He's hoping no one finds out. Look at verse 8. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window, and he saw, behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Of all the people in Gerar, to find this out was the king, Abimelech. He did find out the truth. He, he, he sees it. He sizes it up. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. What's going on here? This guy is actually married to this woman. Now, probably tw Genesis 26 is retrospective. It's going back before Isaac and Rebekah had children. I say that because if they had had children, everybody would know they were married. Probably this was before Genesis 25, uh, you know, and uh, they don't have children, so they're able to pull this deception off for a while. But what is revealing by the way, that's how deception works. It may work for a while, but eventually we're going to get nailed. What is revealing is that every time Abraham and Isaac lied about their wives, every time they were exposed, every time the Lord didn't let them get away with it, in Genesis 12, what happened? The Lord struck the house of Pharaoh with plagues to expose the truth. In Genesis 20, the Lord appeared uh, to the first of them like in a dream and threatened him within an inch of his life. You're a dead man if you, if you touch that, wife, that woman. Restore her. In Genesis 26, there's no direct divine intervention per se, but there's human intervention. The Lord knows how to, he knows how to get us. He knows how to expose sin. He knows how to come after us to expose sin. He's very capable of this. So the gig is up. Isaac has been exposed as a deceiver. Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. I saw you guys out the window. You don't think I have a window over here? How, do you, how then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. You would have brought guilt upon us. Abimelech confronts Isaac, and Isaac admits his fear. Just like the first, uh, by the way, the first Abimelech rebuked, rebuked Abraham. Now this Abimelech rebukes Isaac. And he really lays it on him. What is this you have done to us? You might have brought guilt upon us, you and us. You are guilty, and we, we're going to pay the price because of what you've done. We could have paid the price. He's right. Our sinful words, our sinful actions uh, can cause a chain reaction. If we do something to protect ourselves, it can cause a chain reaction to help hurt other people. Isaac was so concerned about his own self-preservation that what did he do? He endangered his wife, just like Abraham had. And he also set a trap for others. They could have walked right into the trap because Isaac's interest, his own personal interest was put above his family. A lot of people do this, put their own interest above their family and above the entire city of Gerar. It was Isaac first and what he wanted. You know, we need to think in advance, in advance today, not when it's too late. We need to think in advance about how maybe even write down. I tell the guys sometimes, write it down. You know, if we send, what, what will be the consequences? Think about that now. We need to think in advance about how our actions and words will affect other people, not wait until it's, the damage has already been done. Fortunately for Isaac, the Lord is looking out for him. He's watching out for him. Look at verse 11. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. 
This is by the king's command. No one is to take Rebekah. No one is to harm Isaac. The word touch captures both ideas, interestingly enough. The penalty for doing so is death. The death penalty is on anyone who messes with this family. This is God's protection of Isaac, the man who is blessed. Yes, he is blessed. And you see it here again. But Isaac certainly did what? He created a barrier to God's blessing. This is, he just threw up a barrier here. Why all this? Just because we believers are blessed doesn't mean that we can violate his word. Doesn't mean that. The people blessed of the Lord are also called to be obedient to the Lord. Look at verse 5 again. Abraham obeyed me. That's how we're to live. Now, there's a notion these days that the idea of obedience is somehow legalistic or something like that. I don't, I don't understand that. But every time Isaac and Abraham disobeyed, the Lord brought problems upon people brought curses upon people. It hurt other people. It always did or offended people or uh, something, uh, insulted people. Here's the bottom line. Sin of any kind is a, is a barrier to God's blessing. It doesn't matter what it is. And why would we want to hinder the blessing of God upon our lives? So we have the barrier to God's blessing. Thirdly, the hostility to God's blessings. Hostility, that's in verses 12 to 25. Now, not everyone's going to be happy about Isaac's uh, being a blessed man, <laughs> at least the city of Gerar won't be. They're going to begin to express hostility toward him. We'll see this unfold in these verses. That hostility will reveal itself in two ways. First of all, through envy. Secondly, through quarreling. First, envy. Uh, look at verses 12 and 13. Uh, these verses, by the way, these verses are going to show us how blessed, just how blessed Isaac was. He was blessed in many ways. First of all, through agriculture. Look at verses 12 and 13. Uh, now Isaac sowed in that land, he's in Gerar, he reaped in the same a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. So Isaac plants crops in Gerar, and then he reaps a great harvest. In fact, it's a bumper crop. It's an unusually productive yield. In fact, it's a yield that's a hundredfold. Now, when you see the word a hundredfold, it's hard not to think of what the New Testament says when it talks about bearing fruit and, and all these different amounts that are listed. Some people uh, that are believers, when they bear fruit, for example, some will bear 30-fold. Some will bear 60-fold. You see that in Matthew 13. Some will bear 100-fold. Every believer is to bear fruit, by the way. Or there's other references to that. But 100-fold is the highest yield possible. Isaac reaped a, hundred, a harvest that was 100-fold. It's amazing. In front of all these Philistines, here this guy all of a sudden has this tremendous crop. Now what is amazing is that the reason Isaac went to Gerar in the first place was because of a famine. Uh, and God said, stay here in Gerar, which has less natural resources than Egypt. And yet look how blessed he is. And in his first year of planting, some, th some think the, the famine is still on. Others uh, do not. I don't know if it's on or not. And maybe God just made this happen. Nevertheless, God did make this happen. He blessed him. This is his first year of planting. Now, does he get these results because he's an experienced farmer? Because he is the magic touch to, uh, to, to farm? No, verse 12 sa says, and the Lord blessed him, and he became rich. That's why it happened. The Lord blessed him. The reason his crop was so successful is because the Lord blessed him. That's what he attributes it to. Just like God said he would. I'll bless you. So just trust me. Stay here. I'll, I'll bless you, and he does. It's all due to God's blessing. Famine or no famine, that doesn't stop God's blessing. It has nothing to do with God's blessing whatsoever. 
And then he, not only in agriculture, but herds, he's blessed. Look at verse 14. Uh, Isaac had possessions of flocks and herds. All this cattle he's got. And, uh, and also, verse 14, he has a great household, which means he has many servants. So here's the picture before us. Isaac settles down in Gerar as an outsider. He's not one of them. He's not a local. I, when I was looking at this, I was thinking, when I went, I one time I went to Charlotte, North Carolina on a business trip, and we went to a restaurant, and a bunch of us went in the restaurant and sat down to eat, and we heard the people at the table next to us talking, and one guy said to everybody else at the table, he said, about us, he said, they're not from here. <laughs> oh, well, wait, way to make us feel welcome to Charlotte, North Carolina. We felt like outsiders when that was said. Isaac is an outsider, and he knows it, but he comes into town, he puts his hand to the plow, and he, the first year he's there, he becomes farmer of the year, first try. On top of that, he has vast uh, servants to work for him, workforce. He's got all this cattle. Think about this. You're a Philistine who lives there, a local. Do you think this is going to cause a problem for these guys that are watching for the community? As a matter of fact, it does. Look at verse 14. The Philistines envied him. They envied him. When they saw all this, I mean, you can imagine, all this spread, all these, uh, he's, he's a great farmer, he's got all this cattle, he's got all these servants. And so what was the natural result? They envied him. That word envy, by the way, is also used uh, to describe Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37 when they're angry and they hate, they show their hatred for Joseph. They envy him. Same word. So the Philistines who, who have been tolerating uh, Isaac all his time will no longer do so. They've been ordered, you can't put this guy to death or his wife. Don't do that. But they're going to figure out another way. Look at verse 15. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. Notice again the emphasis on his father twice here. His father's servants, Abraham's servants, had dug in the days of Abraham his father. The Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you're too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So what do the Philistines do? They can't kill him. They stop his wells. They, they plug them up. The well, by the way, Abraham had dug these wells back in Genesis 21. And it's the same area Isaac is in now. Isaac had used those wells to his advantage. But the Philistines decided to make those wells inaccessible. So they plug them up. They fill them with dirt. Isaac needed those wells to water his herds and to water the crops. So the Philistines, what did they do? They created an economic crisis for Isaac. And they said, you're more powerful. You're too powerful. It's too much. We're concerned about this influence you have, so please leave us alone. And he does. He doesn't go back home to Beersheba. He stays in Gerar, but he relocates to another area called the Valley of Gerar, not real far away probably, all because of envy. Now, envy will cause people to do some pretty drastic things. People have killed others because of envy. It certainly has no place in the lives of God's people. You know, if one believer becomes wealthy, that doesn't mean I should be envious of him. The Lord can bless believers with tremendous wealth. And uh, there, in fact, there's several, there are several believers these days that are extremely wealthy, and you know what they're doing? They're, they're giving greatly to the cause of Christ. They're helping, the, they're blessing the other people. Now, if a believer becomes wealthy and he hoards all his wealth, that's not the will of God 
1 Timothy 6.18, Timothy is to instruct the, those who are rich in finances to be rich in good works, it says, to be generous and ready to share. That's what they're to do. Now, it's not for me to envy a wealthy believer, though. It's for me to be content with what I have, with what God's given me. I should be content with that, whatever it is. But the world, which hates Christ, they may see a wealthy believer, and they may be envious of him, um, but that's not going to stop the blessing of God. It's just not going to do it. And so they are envious of him, and they, they show their hostility, and this is probably a very difficult situation. They show their hostility through envy. Secondly, they show it through quarreling. Look at verse 18. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found, they found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it, too, so he named it Sitna. So Isaac is in this new location. He claims the rights over the wells that his father had once owned, <clears throat> and he gives them, even gives them the same names that his father gave them. They're rightfully his, technically. Um, and, but the people of Gerar say, no, it's our land, so it's there for our wells, and it goes back and forth. Now, you have to understand what this is all about. Why are they, why all this fighting and quarreling? Because you have to understand the importance of wells and water in that day. Now, water is vital to life anywhere on the planet, but especially here, this is a semi-arid area. They have a rainy season for a while, but then they have a dry season. Everything dries up completely. That made water all the more important. It's a top priority. Everybody needs water. They're going to do whatever they take, take, what it takes to get it. Verse 19, Isaac finds water, but not only water, but flowing water. Do you see that in verse 19, flowing water? He finds a subterranean source of fresh water, spring water. That's highly valuable because it, there's a constant flow of water uh, at that point. And so everybody wants that. And he keeps finding water. Why? Because God lets him find water. <laughs> they name one well Essek. That means contention. It's a great name for a well, right? We'll call this well contention. Verse 21, they find another well. They call it Sitna, which means enmity. Why give these names, these wells such names as enmity and contention is because there's constant quarreling over them. Twice it says they quarreled over these wells. Isaac is still in Philistine territory. Those guys needed water too. And so they quarrel over this precious resource of water that everybody needs. Now, how do you think Isaac was so successful at the well digging business? Whatever business he gets into is successful. We know from the preceding verses that the Lord is blessing him. Again, the Lord is blessing this man. So he's able to constantly find water, flowing water. Everything he puts his hand to turns to gold. God is, it's all because God is blessing him. But even with that, we've got to understand this. With all this blessing going on, as Colossians 1.21 says, unbelievers, the mind of unbelievers is hostile. It's hostile to the things of God. It's hostile to the people of God. It is. And it engages in evil deeds. You remember Saul of Tarsus who was so hostile in his mind, he persecuted the church, which followed Christ. Shouldn't be surprised. Unbelievers are going to eventually direct their flaming arrows, the flaming arrows of the evil one, at believers. They do finally get a break from the quarreling, but who knows for how long. Look at verse 22. He moved away from there. He goes, he moves again and dug another well. They did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth, for he said, as at last the Lord has made room for us, 
will be fruitful in the land. That word means to be spacious or bountiful. Well, we don't know how long that's going to last for, but Proverbs 17, 14 says this, speaking of quarreling, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so you should abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's what Isaac did. He sought to abandon, to avoid the quarrel by leaving. He did what we should do. Believers should seek to live in peace with the world. We should try to do that. Our focus is not on arguing with the people of the world. That's not the focus, but be on being peacemakers and pointing people to the Prince of Peace. In fact, Romans 12, 18 says, listen to this verse, Romans 12, 18. As if, it, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, with all people. It's not always possible to be at peace with people. If, if, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so as far as it depends on you and I, we should seek the peace. Uh, in this hostile world, we live in a hostile world, hostility towards Christ, we should seek peace, and we, we should point people to the Prince of Peace, the only one that can bring true peace to them. So we see the hostility to God's blessing. Fourthly, the reassurance of God's blessing. The reassurance. Look at verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. He moves again. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants, what do you think they did? They dug a well. Isaac moves again. This time he's back home. He goes back home to Beersheba. And the same night, guess what happens? The Lord appears to him a second time. Now, this appearance is meant to reassure Isaac. Again, the Lord makes a connection with, Isaac, with Abraham. The Lord says, I'm the God of your father, Isaac. Remember that? I told you that already. I'm going to bless you and your descendants for the sake of Abraham, your father. But understand, as, as, by the way, understand this, as one writer said, the efficacy of the blessing did not rely on the merit of Abraham, but was rather on, on account of the divine commitment made to Abraham and his descendants. <clears throat> in other words, Abraham, committed, Abraham uh, covenant rather, has its basis in God, not Abraham. Abraham is finally connected with it, but it's, it's, it, God's the foundation of it. The Lord says, do not fear, for I am with you. Now, that's the word of encouragement he needed to hear. He's already been told this. He's, been, he's told this again. I want you to know, Isaac, I'm with you. Uh, how do we know he was fearful? Because the Lord says, do not be afraid. Show, showing us that what? He was afraid. And uh, what was he afraid of? Well, it doesn't say, but I think we can gather from what we've read that he's afraid of all this quarreling and fighting over wells. That was probably a lot more hostile than it appears on the, on the page. And he didn't want to go through all that again. He may have had other fears. And even though he's back in his homeland, he doesn't know what he's going to face. So the Lord appears to him, with this word of reinsurance, do not fear, I am with you. You know, God's presence is enough to calm our fears. That's something we need to think about. His presence is enough to calm our fears. Are you afraid of something tonight? Is there something bothering you tonight? Is there something weighing on your conscience? Or is there something causing you anxiety tonight? Then meditate on Genesis 26, 24. I'm not talking about Psalms here. Or Romans, I'm talking about Genesis 26, 24. Meditate on that verse. The Lord's presence is the antidote to fear. It is. To worry, to depression, to all these things. You are not alone. The Lord is with his people. I don't know of anything that's more reassuring than the thought that the Lord is with me. 
How does Isaac respond to this appearance of the Lord? Verse 25, he worships him. That's the only appropriate response. You worship the Lord who is always with you. And by the way, why not dig a well while you're at it, at the place of worship? And he does. Finally, the recognition of God's blessing. Verses 26 to 33, the recognition of God's blessing. Look at verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor, Ahuzeth, Phicol, the commander of, of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we, have, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have done not touched you, he uses that word touch again, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in, and they told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So Abimelech, we thought we were rid of Abimelech, because Isaac's back home in Beersheba, but Abimelech and two of his officials make a trip to go see, to Beersheba, not terribly far away, to see Isaac. Isaac wonders, what are you doing here? It's a surprise. What are you guys doing here? Don't you hate me? He says in verse 24, doesn't exactly lay out the welcome mat. He's clearly upset at the treatment he received from them. Don't you hate me? But their answer in verse 28 is pretty astounding. Look what they say. <clears throat> now they come from Gerar, travel to his home. They say this, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. It's the third time it says this in this, pa in this passage. The Lord is, it's obvious the Lord is with you. We can't deny it. We freely admit it. We see it. They recognize that God's blessing on Isaac. Look at the end of verse 29. They say this, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Now, back in Genesis 21, the first Abimelech said something similar to Abraham. He said this. He said, God is with you in all you do. I can see that God is with you in all you do. They recognize the presence of God with both father and son, and they admit it. They admit they're afraid also, verse 29, promise us you'll do us no harm. This is what this is all about. They're afraid of the influence. Remember they said you're too powerful for us? Please leave. They're afraid of the God of Isaac and Abraham, and they're afraid of Isaac and Abraham and their influence. Promise you're going to do us no harm. We've done you no harm. Well, yes and no. They protected him from death, but they kind of they, all the quarreling and all that, that wasn't too nice of them to do. But they decided on a peace treaty, which they seal by means of a meal. The meal, I understand, was a way to confirm a treaty. And would you know it, on the very same day, uh, Isaac's servants find another well of water. Well, this is just like, boom, another one right after the other. They named it, probably renamed it what Abraham had given the original name, verse, uh, chapter 20, uh, 21, verse 31. They named it Sheba which is part of the word Beersheba, meaning well of the oath. We're going to make an oath here like Abraham made earlier on. And so they name it Sheba. You just can't stop God's blessing. It just keeps coming. Exciting day all around. But it all started with the fact that the Philistines recognized that the Lord was with Isaac and was blessing him. Now, I remember one time Mike preached a, uh, on Ephesians while well, he preached through the whole book. And he entitled the first section, I never forgot it, Mike, Blessed Beyond Belief. 
That's what he entitled the first section, Blessed Beyond Belief. Chapter 1, remember chapter 1, verse 3? Uh, that it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. All those great blessings we have. Yes, we are, as God's people, are blessed beyond belief. That's true. And some of the things he said this morning were similar. Blessed beyond belief. We may not be as rich as Isaac and Abraham in finances, but we get to partake of the surpassing riches of the grace of God, uh, Ephesians 2 7. How's that for blessing? I mean, we really are greatly blessed. We don't, I don't think we realize that. I, I wonder if we really grasp, if we really grasp the incredible blessing we have from God through Christ. Uh, there was a guy who read, uh, was talking to uh, an individual about Ephesians. He said, you know, I read Ephesians through. He said, I read through the book of Ephesians. And he said, I decided to read through it again. And I read through it again. He said, I read it through 90 times this week. <laughs> this is years ago, a long time ago. Nobody would do that now, probably. But Dr. Martin might do it. But, <laughs> but he did it. He said, and now I understand. Now I understand the blessings we have in Christ. Because I've been meditating on this the whole week. Now I get it. We have unbelievable blessings in Christ. A correct understanding of our calling in Christ should have a great effect upon us, so much so that others see it. They sense it in us. Other people should be able to examine our lives over time, and they should be able to recognize something, that God is with us. Those who know us best, our family, our friends, uh, people at church, our schoolmates, our neighbors, they should see something of Christ in us. They may not understand everything about biblical theology. I'm not saying that. But they recognize there is something about your life that demonstrates the reality of Christ. They see that, that you're different from the world. It shows in your attitude, in your words, in your, uh, in how, in your, your sincerity, in your actions. I don't, I don't mean they're going to fall down before you and say, what must I do to be saved, necessarily. But does your life and mine, even in some small way, show the reality of living Christ to the world? It should. The Lord blessed Abraham and Isaac, and he will bless Jacob, too, in the coming weeks we'll see that but is this blessing of god reserved only for old testament old testament patriarchs is that well is that all is we read about these guys well that guy was isaac was blessed abraham was blessed jacob was blessed but what about me is the blessing of god only reserved for old testament patriarchs no it's for all god's people ephesians 1 we have all these spiritual blessings in christ and you can read the whole new testament the whole old testament you'll see it again and again so it includes us as well we need to think Stop and think about what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, and we should desire that others come to know this Christ also, who is the greatest blessing of them all. Let's go, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're thankful for your word. Pray that we're thankful for your blessings upon us. Uh, we don't, so many times in life, we just go about our day, and we're caught up in, in our own little world. We don't think about the calling we have in Christ, all these incredible blessings that books like Ephesians mention. Help us to think about these things. Help us to be convicted about these things. We pray we'll let these uh, great uh, thoughts of the Lord's presence with us sink into our very soul. Pray it will transform our lives so that others may see Christ in us and that we may be a testimony to them. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.